recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink. This is Christogonia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, April 13th, 2000. I'm sorry, I have an echo from somewhere. 2013. Tonight I'll be with Sword Brethren. Hello. And he has a um, he, he has a presentation on the Bavarian Red Republic that he is going to present, and, and I'm going to help him do that, and, and we're going to have some comments and things like that. on. In, in regards to his presentation, this may be a theme which spans several weeks. Tonight's presentation should be just the beginning of it. We will do installments on it. Again, in the future, I would do. I, I would like to do installments on the Bavarian Red Republic and on the early years of the National Socialist Party in Germany. That will also help us um, correct a lot of the record in regards to the early years of Adolf Hitler. Hello, Brian. Hello. How are you? Hey, Thank you for being here. Absolutely, Prejali, and thank you for having me here. I think it'll be an interesting presentation tonight. Well, well, I pray so. It's basically your program. It's your presentation. And, and um, uh, of course, there's going to be parts of it I'm going to read with you. Right. Shall I begin then, or do you have opening thoughts? No, I, I'm sorry. Um, okay. I, I had a temporary distraction, technical problem. No, right. what? Well, I have no opening thoughts except that... Um, the early years, it, it, pertaining to Adolf Hitler, first, the, the first facet and the most important facet of what you're going to present, I believe, is the, the, the imminent danger that Germany suffered at the end of World War I of falling into the um, Soviet satellite. The, 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 the Bolshevik Revolution was basically only about a year and a half old when the Bavarian Red Republic was declared under Eugene um, no, it, it was the first one lasted six days, and, and then one right after that was under Eugene Levine, I believe. Right, but, right. But, um, it, it was a year and a half. It, it was a year and a half after the beginning of the Bolshevik Revolution that Germany, and, and beginning with Bavaria, almost fell to the communists in like manner. And, and it's a very important um, it, it's a very important time to understand how close Germany came to, to um, falling into the hands of the Bolsheviks and how, um, how much the people feared that. Most of the people in Germany were, were in terrible fear of, of undergoing what was going on and, and what they know had happened to, to the, um, the Christian people of Russia. It, it's it's um, important to understand that because in the Weimar Republic, Conditions weren't probably weren't much better. They were they were very decadent, and and um, the the um, the Jews had the run of it, and that's the only reason why they that they probably didn't burn it to the ground. But um, it, it's important to understand that the fear that was in the hearts of the German people, and and what paved the way for Adolf Hitler. That's important to understand. Right. Why an Adolf Hitler was necessary. Well, he didn't just come out of a void, as this presentation will show. Well, well, absolutely, and and many people like to mischaracterize Hitler's role in in the um, 
in in Bavaria in 1919 and, and 1918. I think that's important to, to get to the heart of also. Right. Right, then I'll begin. It is hard to imagine the sorry state of these former soldiers. They had won the war, but had victory snatched from them by the traitors who stabbed them and their entire nation in the back. And still, they loved their fatherland. They didn't lose heart because they were denied victory. Who knew? what they would face as they marched home from the battlefields where they had not been routed but were leaving in good order with solid unit cohesion. Can you imagine how much they loved Germany, that they didn't simply break ranks and desert, some heading for Berlin, some for Munich, others for Frankfurt, others for East Prussia? They stuck together with their comrades to defend Germany because they knew Germany would need defending in the tough days that lay ahead. When ruthless, vicious Marxist criminals saw that Germany, their supposed homeland, was weak, they struck. First in Berlin, and then in Munich. In Munich, they massacred thousands before they were crushed by the army and the Freikorps. And who were these Freikorps? Just who were they? They were demobilized former soldiers who had kept their equipment and their weapons and stuck together with their brothers in arms, electing to tough it out and defend Germany no matter what. They were not paid. They didn't even have money for provisions. They had only what food the German people decided to bestow upon them in gratitude for their monumental sacrifice. Their home was whatever tree they decided to lay their head against whenever their unit stopped for the night. But they had endured these miserable hardships because they loved Germany. So they endured, just as they had endured four years of shelling and bombing in the mud and blood of the trenches. They had won the war only to be robbed of victory by the very scoundrels now rising up to seize their homeland from them. American soldiers wouldn't stick around more than a month if the paycheck stopped. America is just a flag in a central government. It means nothing. But these men, these Freikorps men, by God, they were men amongst men. They loved Germany, they fought for Germany, and many died for Germany. Nobody paid the Freikorps soldiers to stick around. Nobody paid them to fight. Nobody compelled them to fight. They stayed because of love. They fought because of love. They endured misery. They endured the hell of civil war because of love. They gave their lives, all they had left, because of love. Because they loved Germany, they fought for Germany. They marched in November of 1923 because of love for Germany. Greater love has no man had for his homeland than they. The memory of the Bavarian Soviet Republic was fresh in their minds. They knew what the butchers had done when they had seized power and held Munich for only a few weeks. The streets would run red with blood if the Marxists were permitted to take ownership of all of Germany. Of course, the West wanted that. They handed Germany to the Marxists on a silver platter. They knew what would happen if they chopped Germany's army to a mere 100,000 soldiers. They knew that the vast swath of territory in the East granted to Germany under the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk would fall under immediate Bolshevik rule. The West stood by and laughed while the Bavarian Soviet Republic rose, and they condemned those who moved to smash it because they loved Germany too much to let it be driven into the ground by monsters and usurpers. The West was reasonably certain that Germany was going to be a Marxist nation when they cut the army to a maximum of 100,000 soldiers. What prevented the Marxist takeover was the Freikorps and their overwhelming and endless love for Germany. Well, let's talk about that for a second, Brian. That, that, right. that, you know, I understand exactly what you're saying, and, and, and it's right. 
the West did stand by and do nothing. But did most of the people in the West understand hmm. Bolshevism at this time? Well, I would think in that document, Russia number one, a collection of reports on Bolshevism in Russia, the Dutch ambassador even warned about what was going on, so they had to have well, some inkling. But we're talking about a, a, we're talking about a small minority of bureaucrats and diplomats, and um, that these people don't have um, they, that they the, don't. You, the media has. They have no control over the media. They they have no license to get into the newspapers at will. The, the Jews in the West already control the media. Right, but while the ambassadors and diplomats don't set policy, they would be instrumental in advising those who do set policy. So if the king in Britain or the prime minister wants to know what's going on with Bolshevism, a diplomat who just came back from St. Petersburg would be a prime person for having the ear of the king or the ear of the prime minister when it comes time they're coming up with a decision. Well, well right, but e even the, the Russian number one report, and, and I'm, not, I'm not really trying to play devil's advocate here, but it, it might look that way. The, the Russian number one report was um, what was a collection of diplomatic reports from British citizens, British diplomats, and, and sent to the Foreign Office in London, and they were collected by none other than Lord Balfour. He was the he was the foreign minister at the time, and he was um, well. Well, history tells us he was very sympathetic to Jewish causes. Right. So if somebody told him Bolshevism is going to spread across Europe, he would say, "Thank you. I'm well aware of that because he's counting on it." Well, well, right. Absolutely. That's my point. He's on their side, right? And and that's the way we see things in the black and white world. He he's on their side. That the um I I don't know if most you're right to say that the West stood by and did nothing. But I'm not certain that most of the people in the West, or, or even a, a good portion of them, were really aware of what Bolshevism was about, even in 1919, that there were many mixed reports. A lot of American reports, the media was reporting this, worker, the New York Times and all the Jew media outlets were reporting this workers' paradise, and a great percentage of our people bought that up. A lot of people may have been happy to see Marxism come to Germany. Workers' paradise. That's that, that, that's just a, 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 a um, I don't know, I'm trying to give a slightly more pragmatic angle. All right. Well, I don't disagree. When I say the West stood by and laughed, I'm not talking about each individual Frenchman or Englishman. I'm talking about basically the government. Since obviously if a, if a coal miner in Wales doesn't approve of the Bavarian Soviet Republic, he has no real impact on that. It's a matter of national policy set by leaders. It would take, you know, uh, senior members in the House of Lords or the House of Commons to stand up and say no. Well, well right, but I'm not sure. You know, there's a, a report on the, um, the Mein Kampf site on, on Christogenier that it's a United States government report. It, it was filed, you know, by the Secretary of state with the United States Senate. It was a report to the United States Senate and um, Henry Cabot Lodge. And this report does spell out the nature of Bolshevism, does spell out that the Jewish menace behind it. However, it, it's a late report. It's from 1919. I'm not, I don't recall exactly which month. I, I can probably come up with it. Now, Russia number one itself is from April 1919 but it's based on dispatches over the last year. 
So well, obviously, well, if there is a report, the, those dispatches were not yet disseminated to Congress. They were compiled by Balfour and 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 the British Foreign Office, and they weren't yet disseminated to the ministers of Parliament. And um, when they did, the original. Um, publication was very limited and was actually recalled for an abbreviated publication, which basically um, erased the role of Jew. So, so it, it's 1919. It, it's most people in the West, political leaders or, or, or academics or scholars, that most people would be totally oblivious to the true nature of Bolshevism, I believe. Right. And that shows the power of the Jew, that they're able to recall the issue chop out one paragraph and then reissue the article and no one's the wiser. Right. Now, now the report to um, from the State Department to, to um, from Robert Lansing to Henry Cabot Lodge, uh, the memorandum on certain aspects of the Bolshevist movement in Russia, a U.S. government report from 1919, the, the full text of that is on Christogenia. It's the only place you'll find it on the Internet the day I posted it, it did not exist on the internet, and did um, thanks to General Mosley and Sword Brethren, who who actually helped them scan it. But but um, it it it, it was dated for October twenty seventh, nineteen nineteen. That's six months after the Red Republic in, in April of nineteen nineteen. I, I just thought I'd note that 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 um, what well, we should quantify that because it's. It, it's news moved a lot slower in those days, and and the media, the, the Jews had just as tight a reign over the media, uh, especially the international media, because you couldn't get news. From, from what I understand, from what I've read, you didn't get news from Europe in the United States unless it went through Reuters, and that was the case until after the, the Second World War. That's from what I understand. That now um, Reuters, of course, was Jewish controlled. And um, you just didn't get it, and, and Americans didn't get a lot of the, the, the events in Europe. And of course, they they had the ability. I don't know the nature of the news. I, I mean, I do know, and there are documents on the Mein Kampf site, on the Mein Kampf Project website, that do express the Jewish nature of Bolshevism. But those documents were were. were published in publications of limited scope. The, the, they weren't published by the um, they weren't published by the New York Times, they weren't published by the the, the Washington Post, that they were published by World Work and, and, and by the Literary Digest and, and publications that just didn't have a um, as wide a readership as a mainstream news publication may have, and of course there was no television, no internet back then or anything like that. In fact, I don't even know if um, commercial radio was very popular in 1919. I don't think it was. Right, and it's not as though somebody in Iowa could just call up you know, his friend in Kubashev or Vladivostok and ask, hey Ivan, what's going on with that Bolshevik revolution? There was no way to get information. Well, well, right. This, this information about the true nature of the Bolshevik Revolution and its ruthlessness. Uh, I mean, look at the, um, the the power of the media is, is such that it, even that they they portrayed Stalin to be a saint, and and, and the the average American never questioned the, the U.S. allegiance to to the um, 
to the Soviet to Soviet Russia under Stalin. Never questioned it. And, and that was the power of the Jewish media then and, and, and their ability to demonize Germany in a nation where 50% of the population descended from Germans. They demonized, they were able to demonize Germany and, and, and nobody really questioned the relationship that we had with the Soviets. And, and our tag team endeavored to destroy Germany. It's the power to me that is awesome. And, and what, when no news is available the, the way we have it available today, I mean, it, it's, it's, people really can't make judgments. So, so that's, I'm just trying to quantify that and, and view it more pragmatically. It, it, I thought it was a good discussion point. Right. Men who had suffered unimaginable and unspeakable hell in the four years of the Great War, and none of them resigned themselves to sitting around and complaining about the sorry state of affairs in their fatherland. They dedicated themselves to act to stop the takeover. They were honor-bound to defend Germany in her time of need, and it was to Germany's great fortune that men such as they were alive. Most Germans might deny it today, but one day the truth shall shine through the fog of lies and obfuscation constructed by history's greatest liars, and the German people will understand the colossal debt they owe to Adolf Hitler and his brown shirts. Well, well that's right. The, the German people understood a lot better what was really going on in the Soviet Union. And that's why they feared, that they understood what the Bolsheviks were doing. But, but that news just wasn't reaching America. During those dark days following the collapse of November 1918, when it was difficult to be a German and even painful to be a nationalist, Germany lay helpless. The vultures were already circling as the jackals were moving in to finish off the wounded nation. The first major attempt at Bolshevizing Germany, the so-called Spartacist uprising in Berlin in January of 1919, was only averted through the sacrifice of the soldiers of the Freikorps, who not scarcely four months ago had been in the trenches, locked in a bitter death struggle with the mercenaries of the Anglo-Jewish Empire, which had set its sights on the dismantling of Imperial Germany and the Bolshevization of the German state. Young men who answered the call had come from all across Germany, from the farms of Württemberg, the towns of Baden, the villages of Bavaria, the farms of East Prussia, or perhaps the larger cities of the north. They had come to fight for Germany, their fatherland. None of them wanted to be stuck in rat-infested earthen bunkers dug into the sides of the trenches. None of them wanted to be up to their ankles in water, suffering from trench foot, but they learned to live with it because the fatherland needed them. None of them wanted to go over the top and advance on the enemy trench line, all the while under withering machine gun fire, watching as their comrades fell by their side, chewed up and cut to pieces by the latest modern weaponry available. None of them wanted to leap into the enemy trenches and close with the enemy. None of them wanted to be locked in a grapple of death, bayonet to bayonet, knife to knife, hand to hand, down to swinging a shovel, bludgeoning with a helmet, striking with the butt of a rifle, the madness and the horror of killer be killed. Death was dished out at 600 rounds per minute, and none of them wanted a thing to do with that. Death was only ever an inch away, the landing of a shell, the spraying of a machine gun, the thrust of a bayonet, but they all knew the fatherland needed them. Who amongst them would have preferred the hell of the trenches to the happiness of a warm bed back home on their farm? 
Even still, they held firm and they endured. They did not break ranks and rout. They did not desert. They did not mutiny. Love can motivate men to do great things. And these men loved Germany too much to let it be overrun by a gang of rabble from France. In typical Jewish doublespeak, the Jew, Ernst Toller, described the seizure of Munich on 6th April 1919 as the Bavarian Revolution of Love. What that, that the same thing with the seizure of Washington in the 60s, right? <laughs> the summer of love. What does the Jew know of love? Love to the Jew is an incessant orgy of decadent, empty, meaningless sex. All manner of perversion and filth. Life devoid of purpose, save for gratification of base physical urges. Love was why the German soldier endured four years of terror and misery beyond belief. Love for Germany. Love for their comrades in arms. Love was why the Fry Corps marched into Berlin in January of 1919. It is not enough to say the Jew will never understand the love that the Fry Corps had for their fatherland. We must not merely say that the Jew does not understand it. He is incapable of understanding. The young men who answered the call in 1918-1919 to save Germany in her hour of gravest need had already answered the call in 1914 and suffered through four years of unprecedented hell for their fatherland. By all rights, they had done their duty and were free to go home. Germany had no right to ask any more of them. Legally speaking, they were out of the military and could not be punished if they elected to go home. But the torment they would subject themselves to, having to wake up each day and realize they had failed to stand by Germany when she needed them more than ever, would have been punishment enough. Such a punishment would be a fate worse than death, for it has been said that a coward dies a thousand deaths. None of these men were cowards, but they all must have been afraid. Afraid of what lay ahead for Germany. Afraid of what might happen to their families while they were off fighting the communists. Afraid of what might happen if they were to fall into the hands of the Bolsheviks. Afraid for their very lives. Once again, they put their fears aside and fought for Germany just as they had fought for Germany during the four years of 1914 to 1918. They stayed by her side during the years of the collapse of 1918 to 1919. Unfortunately, the Jews were in full possession of Munich at this point, the 6th of April, 1919, and whenever the Jew has unchecked power, even if only for a short space, life will become a living nightmare. The Jew is a rootless parasite even when in power, and since he feels no connection to the people over whom he rules, because he is not one of them and can never be one of them, he will use the people as human cattle, pawns in his game of power-mongering. Ernst Toller, the self-styled president of the so-called Revolution of Love, picked as his foreign minister a one Dr. Franz Lipp, who had been committed numerous times to a mental asylum. One might wonder if he found him in a mental asylum when he was recruiting soldiers for his new revolutionary Red Army. This vigorous, up-and-coming go-getter thought it wise to issue a declaration of war against Switzerland after the Swiss refused to deliver 60 locomotives to the new Bavarian Soviet Republic. And so he did issue said declaration. He made history in Switzerland because he gave the Swiss people the only war involving Switzerland in the 20th century. Franz Lipp also thought it wise to occupy Lenin's time by sending him cables regarding the foreign ministry toilet in Munich. Yes, the foreign ministry toilet. In one such cable, he declared that the former minister, Hoffman, ousted by the revolution, had fled to Bomberg 
and taken the key to the toilet with him. Not exactly the ideal Jewish government, but at the time it was good enough for Lenin. In the dynamic of good cop, bad cop, or good Jew, bad Jew, Lenin would be the good Jew, the articulate clean-cut Jew, calling for peace, land, and bread, while Franz Lipp would be the bad cop, or the bad Jew, the insane Jew, rambling unintelligible gibberish about toilets and locomotives. Ultimately, Ernst Toller and Franz Lipp had to go, and Lenin wasted no time in getting rid of them. Ernst Toller was in power in Munich from the 6th of April to the 12th of April, exactly six days. On the 12th of April, forces loyal to Eugene Levine seized power and declared a full communist government with the formation of an official Red Army. Perhaps we might do well to briefly examine the background of this supposed German revolutionary. It should not come as a surprise that Eugene Levine was a Jew, nor should it be shocking to learn that he was not even born in Germany. Eugene Levine was born in 1883 to an elite Jewish family in St. Petersburg. He was trained in Germany and then returned to Russia to rise up against the Tsar during the Jewish Revolution of 1905. He was exiled to Siberia, so much for the Tsar being a bloodthirsty tyrant, and most nations trying to overthrow the government in a violent revolution would result in execution. He was merely exiled, and then somehow he managed to escape to Germany. I cannot help but wonder if his Houdini-like escape was actually just another Jewish trick made possible by the help of his fellow Jews. While in Munich during the Jewish takeover, Levine took away the homes of the wealthy and gave them to the homeless. I wonder if it ever occurred to him to give away his palatial mansion in St. Petersburg when he was in Russia years earlier. It's always easier for the Jew to give away somebody else's home, though. Thus, creating large amounts of new homeless in the process, but he didn't much care about them because they were not part of the cadre of his newly formed Red Guards. This Jewish economic genius also abolished money and declared that workers would have ownership of the factories. Since the Jew Levine was an obedient member of the German Communist Party, it went without saying that when Lenin sent orders to take hostages from the bourgeoisie, Levine implemented the orders without question. Isn't that like a pattern that the Jews follow is to disgrace a people by taking its jewels and giving them to the, the aliens and the scum? It, it's going on in England right now, and, and I've seen this documented. Where, where these these immigrants, they're called, right? That, that these um, African Somalis and refugees and 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 the scum of Africa that are being allowed to flood into England, they're, they're handing them multi-million dollar mansions or, yeah. or multi-million pound mansions. Right. They're handing them mansions. They're handing them luxury homes. They're buying them cars. It's the same thing all over again. It's the, the Bavarian Red Republic everywhere, right? All it's over really shocking and amazing that a, a Negro can get off the boat in Britain or he, he lands there on a first-class plane ticket. They paid for the ticket. They recruited him in Somalia or Kenya. They verify he barely speaks English. He has no skills, no degree, can't read or write. He knows nothing about math. And they say, well, you've got a great future in Britain. Come, you know, come over here. They bring him over to Britain, and then they put him in a 6,000-square-foot mansion that taxpayers had to pay for while most people in Britain are falling on poverty and hard times. And you're working longer and keeping less because you have to pay taxes so an Iraqi or a Somali or some sort of hot and tot can live in a palace. 
So, so the, the the English government is playing the role of Eugene Levine, right? They're just they're they're overseeing the greatest wealth transfer in the, in the history of the British people, and the same thing's happening in this country too. Our governments are basically just organized crime syndicates, and they're here to carry out the theft in an orderly fashion. But well, right, there's Eugene Levine's all over the West. It, it's amazing that people don't see the patterns. And the, the patterns in history, I don't, they don't look at history because they're too busy looking at the Jewish, the, the rabbi screaming in their living room, the Jewish Talmud vision. Here you have a letter from um, V.I. Lenin to the, the government of the Bavarian Soviet Republic. This was um, delivered on April 27th of 1919. It wasn't published in until April 22nd, 1930, when it appeared in Pravda. I'm going to read this letter. We thank you for your first, your, your mess, I'm sorry. We thank you for your message of greetings. And on, on part, on our part, wholeheartedly greet the Soviet Republic of Bavaria. We ask you insistently to give us more frequent Definite information on the following. What measures have you taken to fight the bourgeois executioners at this time? The, 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 at this very time, and this is left out of the, the, um, the, the Douglas Reed, Oscar, uh, Otto Strasser information that we're going to discuss later on. The regular army in Bavaria was going around executing communists. Just because the Soviet Republic was was um, instituted in Bavaria doesn't mean that they had all of the people cowed or all of the people on their side. The regular army, of which Adolf Hitler was a part in April of 1919, was going around executing communists. Right, but of course the communists had a lock on Munich at the time. Well, well right. And, and here we see that... Um, here we see that Lenin wants to know what they're doing about the bourgeois executioners. The Scheidermans and, and, and company have councils of workers and servants been formed in the different sections of the city. I'm sorry, this is poorly, poorly written. It, it's kind of like translated in broken English. It's difficult to read, right? Have the workers been armed? Have the bourgeois been disarmed? Has use been made of the stocks of clothing and other items for immediate and extensive aid to the workers, and especially to the farm laborers and small peasants? Have the capitalist factories and wealth in Munich and the capitalist farms in its environs been confiscated? Have mortgage and rent payments by small peasants been canceled? Have the wages of farm laborers and unskilled workers been doubled or tripled? Have all paper stocks and all printing presses been confiscated so as to enable popular leaflets and newspapers to be printed for the masses? Has the six-hour working day with two- or three-hour instruction in state administration been introduced? Have the bourgeois in Munich been made to give up surplus housing so that workers may be immediately moved into comfortable flats. Have you taken over all the banks? Have you taken hostages from the ranks of the bourgeois? Have you introduced higher rations for the workers than for the bourgeois? 
Have all the workers been mobilized for defense and for ideological propaganda in the neighboring villages? The most urgent and most extensive, extensive implementation of these and similar measures, coupled with the initiative of workers, farm laborers, and acting apart from them, small peasants' councils should strengthen your position. An emergency tax must be levied on the bourgeois and an actual improvement effected in the condition of the workers, farm laborers, and small peasants at once, at all costs. So, so there basically Lenin issued his marching orders. With sincere greetings and wishes of success, Lenin. Well, isn't this a pattern we see all over Europe and, in fact, all over the world? The, the Bolshevik Jews in the Soviet Union claim that communism is developing spontaneously throughout the world, each society according to its own circumstances, conditions, and cultures. And then when there's a communist party in Germany, they're expected to take their orders from Moscow. This is just the German branch of the Soviet Bolshevik Jew party. But, well, absolutely. There's no doubt. It, it, wasn't that it, it wasn't the grassroots revolution inspired by the working man that the Western media sold on Western academics and, and, and the, the Western um, literati, the, the reading class, let's put them that way. The, the coffeehouse Jews in New York and, and Hartford. Right. It, it's it's um, the, the Western propaganda and the reality of communism in Europe are, are at polar opposites. Well, we see, too, in the, during the Cold War in the West and in America, a communist party leader could be relieved after receiving, you know, orders from Moscow. You're fired. You're out of the party. You've been expelled. Well, if it's the Communist Party of the USA, then the Soviet Politburo in Moscow should have no say on who the leadership of an American political party is. But it's really just the American branch of the Soviet Party. Absolutely. But the media never portrayed it that way. The Jewish media in the West never portrayed it that way. That's exactly what it was. And even in East Germany, residents would derisively refer to the East German Communist Party as the Russian Party or the Soviet Party. Well, back to your paper, your comments on Lenin. Ultimately, Lenin ordered Levine to have the hostages executed when it was obvious that the Fry Corps and the army were closing in and were going to assault the city. Levine was more than willing to carry out the task, but there was one crucial problem. His Red Guard gunmen, being actual Germans who were misled into joining with the communists, as opposed to genuine German-hating Jews bent on wreaking havoc and sowing destruction across Germany, refused to murder unarmed hostages. Fortunately for Levine, his Talmudic cousin Lenin had a solution to the dilemma. Jew commissars from the Bolshevik Red Army were sent from Russia through Hungary into the Bavarian Soviet Republic where they served as willing executioners. Well, let me talk for a second about the habit of hostages, right? Because a lot of people don't really understand what, what, what Lenin means by hostages here. In, in, um, I'll use the example that the Roman Empire used. When Rome subjected a kingdom, what they would do is they would take sons and, and daughters sometimes, but they would take sons 
from the the um, the leading families and and the leading political families of of the kingdom, the kings not not only from the king's family, but but from a lot of the political leaders, they would take sons of their families and bring them back to Rome. And if that nation ever revolted, that the, the guys was that the sons would be educated in Roman ways. But in truth, if that nation ever revolted from Rome, those people would end up losing their sons, right? And, and that's a way to keep an oppressed people in check is by taking hostages. And in, in the Bible, the, um, the book of Dezar, the king of Babylon, when he first came to Jerusalem, he put it under tribute and he took a thousand hostages of the principal people of the city. And we see that right in the Bible. The prophet Daniel was one of those hostages. And, and he brought them back to Babylon and kept them there. And that was done to help ensure that Jerusalem would not revolt. So, so this is an age-old um, practice, the taking of hostages. The Jews, they learned from history. White people don't learn from history. We keep repeating our mistakes. Lenin, he, he must have known his history because he knew how to keep the bourgeois in check was by taking their family members as hostages. Well, they've done that again and again and again throughout the last 100 years of Marxism-Leninism. Well, well, absolutely. So I just, I, I just wanted to explain that practice. It's a historical practice. It's obviously a 5,000-year-old practice, or maybe perhaps even longer. And, and um, here we see Lenin employing it and commanding this Eugene Levine to employ it. Right. It merits mention that many, hundreds of thousands of Germans, identified as communists at that time, even though they did not want to see Germany destroyed, nor did they want to see Germany handed over to the Jews. They recognized there was a problem with the stock jobbers, the speculators, the profiteers, and the finance lords who were pillaging Germany while they were working themselves to death down in the mines and in the factories. However, they obviously were unaware of the fact that by supporting communism, they were supporting these very same Jewish lords of exploitation. Since the Jews have always dominated both sides of the communist capitalist debate, since the Jews run both communism and capitalism. Even the German communists were almost universally united against violence aimed at the unarmed. Because of this, Levine had to rely on Lenin to send Jewish gunmen into Munich because he couldn't find any Germans, even amongst his Red Guards, who were willing to massacre unarmed and helpless hostages. The Jewish butchers cruelly cut down Prince Gustav of Thurn and Taxis and eight others, electing to massacre them in the basement of a Munich high school. They also slaughtered Countess Hella von Westarp, a young woman who served as a secretary to a German nationalist organization, and one could only hope that she was not violated before being murdered. After the murder of the hostages, the forces of the Freikorps and the army, which had surrounded Munich, stormed into the city. Few communists were spared in the process of retaking the city, and even fewer were spared in the aftermath. Eugene Levine, who could possibly have escaped the death sentence had he not murdered hostages, was executed by a firing squad within three months of the crushing of the so-called revolution of love. The Jews seem to enjoy throwing around the term love, be it the revolution of love or the summer of love, 
although they're usually throwing around bricks or bombs when they're throwing around the word love. When you hear a Jew tossing around the word love, it might be best to take cover because he's probably about to toss something nasty your way. They do have a way with doublespeak, don't they, Bill? The, the revolution of love, the summer of love, what that means is look out, people are going to die. Well, well, right. That they, um, but that, that was what the 1960s was all about. Accept our sexual revolution or we'll keep blowing up your cops and, and your libraries and your schools and whatever else we could get a bomb into. It's, it's, um, and, and, well, I think probably the media is most instrumental, but most of the um, sexual revolution and, and the disgusting um, social revolutions of the 1950s through the 80s, that they succeeded. They succeeded. People caved in. People caved again and again. Look at us now. Now we have fags getting married, and, and um, next it'll be animals. Right. Well, most people want the path of least resistance, and when they're told, have fun having sex, or you can be ostracized and outcast from polite society as a bigot and a hater, most people don't want to stand up for what's right at that point. Absolutely. But fortunately, in Germany, there were people to stand up. Unfortunately, we had to go kick them. You're um, claiming not to be a universalist, and you're telling Mexicans that they're Christians. Okay. That's classic devil speak. That, that, that's a low blow, but that's okay. It's not the topic of the program, right? Hitler was in Munich during the events of the Bavarian Soviet Republic. He had witnessed firsthand what horrors the Jews unleashed in Munich. When the Jew has physical power and control over white people, untold misery will follow. And I guess it doesn't even have to be white people. He can brutalize Palestinians. They'll, they'll brutalize each other. Satan's kingdom is divided against itself. When the Jew comes to power, heads will roll. Hitler did not merely wake up one day and declare that he was going to hate the Jews because he had nothing better to do, and he, he was tired of painting and soldiering, so why not go hate the Jews for a while and see how that works out, make a career out of that. Strasser and Douglas Reed would have us believe that Hitler was either a closet communist who sympathized with the Bavarian Soviet Republic or a coward who was too weak to stand up to the Bavarian Soviet Republic despite having been twice decorated with the Iron Cross. Now, now this is, um, Hitler was in pacewalk from October of 1918 until, I believe, November. He was either released from pacewalk on November 21st, or he arrived back in Munich on November 21st. I'm, I'm not entirely certain that this is sort of um, off the cuff. But, but that's the end of November. He's back in Munich. He's one man. He has no, no real choice but to return back and, and to attempt to stay in the regular army. And that's because, other than that, he's virtually homeless and penniless. So, so he, he just got out of the hospital. He did four years in the army. And um, he, he really has no choice but to return to the regular army. Now, the regular army, in, in the, the, the first, the Novemberists, even though they were socialists and they were basically communists, they attempted to distance themselves from um, Moscow, from what I understand, and and that they they could hardly be called red at that point, I don't think, and and um, 
the, the real red communists didn't take over until the April Revolution and, and the assassination of Baum. I think it was Kurt Eisner. I, I could yeah. be wrong. He was killed Kurt by Eisner. a Jew. Right, right, he was killed by a Jew, and that's when the Reds took over in April. And the regular army was out killing communists at that point. And, and Adolf Hitler really chose not to talk about that period, but his book isn't a biography. His book wasn't meant to be an autobiography. His book was meant to only discuss the, the details of his life as far as his political um, awakening and, and the formation of his philosophy, his political philosophy. So, so it's not really fair to Hitler to, to claim that he was on the wrong side of, of the coin at this time, and, and there's all evidence in Mein Kampf, even though he doesn't discuss it explicitly, that he certainly was not on the wrong side of the coin. Well, he probably didn't want to write a book about killing people in 1919. It's not exactly a, a pleasant topic to bring up. Most soldiers don't want to talk about shooting people. He only discussed um, he, he only discussed his political activities in, in Mein Kampf during this period to the point where he was arrested at one time, and three men were sent to to pick him up. And he discusses an episode in Mein Kampf where they backed down and left because they didn't want to face his rifle. And that's, he left it at that. I mean, the man, was, he was a humble man. He wasn't a braggart. But, but he was also a courageous man. He wasn't a coward. Otto Strasser took advantage of Adolf Hitler's silence and made up his own story. And, and Otto Strasser lied about quite a bit because Otto Strasser tried to claim that the regular army in, in, um, in Munich had joined Eugene Levine and the, and, and the communists, and that's a lie. The regular army were out killing communists, and, and as soon as the Free Corps reached Munich, they joined the Free Corps. They signed it up with the Free Corps to, to help oust the communists. They couldn't do it on their own. Eugene Levine, the regular army, was 9,000 soldiers in April of 1919 in Munich. And Eugene Levine had his own hired army of 20,000. Well, he, he wasn't using the regular army because the regular army was anti-communist. I read, too, that Levine was able to raise a, a red army of approximately 40,000 when he started arming workers, criminals, insane asylum people. Well, well right. I mean, the Jews, will, the, the Jews will employ the scum of the earth every chance they get. Read the Book of Acts. That they were persecuting Christians in the Book of Acts by hiring the scum out of the marketplaces, hiring the lowest of men out of the marketplaces. That men that'll work for 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 anything for any cause, just pay them a dollar and they'll go, or a mark, or or, or a shekel, and they'll go. Here's ten marks and a rifle. Go kill some Christians. No doubt. Douglas Reed. Uh, well, we'll talk about him as 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 this program unfolds, but um. The, the man is very he was very dishonest when it came to Germany and Hitler. Douglas Reed, the famous German hater, repeats the classic lies of Strasser about Hitler having helped the Bolsheviks during the Bavarian Soviet Republic. Nothing could be further from the truth. You have a citation here from Nemesis by Douglas Reed. I I, I might get angry reading this. <laughs> But but that's okay. I'm going to write. I'm going to 
that you um it's a rather long site. Let, let me read the site. Let, let me read the excerpt you have from Douglas Reed's Nemesis. The most famous Bavarian soldier, General Von Epp, began to recruit men to oust the Red Government in Munich. He had seen colonial service, and in the war was first Colonel of the Bavarian Guard and later General Officer, commanding the Bavarian Alpine Corps, elite troops, he had fled to Ordov in Thuringia and with one Captain Ernst Rome as his chief of staff formed the Ep Free Corps, which all patriotic Bavarians tried to join. In Munich, the Red Government, fearing the attack, arrested hundreds of hostages, chiefly officers, and now a very sinister thing happened, which deserves a much greater place in the history of the Jews in politics than it has received. But let me just say that, you know, Reed's um, statement that all patriotic Bavarians tried to join the Free Corps is, is very subjective, right? It, it's a fact of history that there were many patriotic Bavarians who, who were um, in the regular army in Munich and, and in, in Bavaria and who were executing communists and we see a personal letter earlier in this presentation this evening from Lenin himself, which stated that. Right. So they must, executioners. they must have been patriotic Bavarians. Not all patriotic Bavarians sought to join the Free Corps. I'm sure not all patriotic Bavarians could just leave their families behind and run off to Thuringia to join a Von Epp. Well, another thing too, Bill, if you're in the regular army and you're already fighting communists, then joining the Free Corps is not an option because you're in the regular army. And the Free, the Free Corps, it's for people that aren't in the army. So if you're already in the army, Free Corps membership is unnecessary. It's redundant. Absolutely. Uh, well, well, yeah, it's Douglas Reed. Uh, I'm just trying to, trying to um, quantify Reed's lack of objectivity right from the beginning here, right? In Munich, the Red government, fearing the attack, arrested hundreds of hostages, chief, chiefly officers, and now a very sinister thing happened, which deserves a much greater place in the history of the Jews in politics than it has received. Among the hostages were 22 members of the Tool Society, a small and unimportant, unimportant body which fostered the cult of old German literature, traditions, folklore, legends, and the like. Anti-Semitism was an integral part of its teaching. So was anti-Christianity. It was an insignificant group without any power or possibility of putting its theories into practice. It had no single politician among its members, only a few old professors and noblemen. And, and I believe I know where, where Reed is going with this. And let me just say that Adolf Hitler spent two pages in Mein Kampf, two pages denigrating the people that Douglas Reed just described. Of all the hundreds of hostages, precisely these 22 people, including several women among them, Countess Westarp, were taken out and shot by the alien Jewish government of Munich. The Ep Free Corps took shape for the expedition against Red Munich. All the figures who later played a big part in the European drama gathered for the smaller one, save Hitler. 
according to Reed. He yeah, wasn't there, was though. A, How, well, he wasn't there. How would he know? Well, well right. He, he wasn't there. How would he know? Well, well Hitler... Hitler simply was in Munich. He had just got he had just gotten out of the hospital. He was his dead. Mother, his mother was dead. He had temporarily lost his eyesight because of a, a, a British mustard gas bombing which he suffered. He was at Pacewalk, which was in um, I, I believe it was in Prussia. Pacewalk was in Prussia, and, and um, he he had two choices: to be homeless. I'm sure that he couldn't have, have um, if he didn't have an opportunity to hear of Von Epp, to hear of this um, free corps. Who knows? I I don't know. I think he I think he does talk about it in Mein Kampf. However, he he had two choices: to either be homeless, the free corps wasn't getting paid to be homeless, or to go back to his old unit, which he was still assigned to, and and to stay in a regular army. Now, Bavaria was not, even though the Novemberists under Kurt Eisner, the um, socialists had taken over, they founded a socialist republic and distanced themselves from Moscow. They were not a red republic until April of 1919, six months later. So there's really nothing wrong with Adolf Hitler going back to his old unit and, and staying in the regular army, unless you can see the future. Now, of course, in 1919, in, in 1918, the young Adolf Hitler couldn't be expected to see the future. It just wasn't. It, it, Reed's assessment is very, very unfair. Hitler was in Munich. He was still a soldier. He had, as he tells in Mein Kampf, taken a fearsome anti-Bolshevist oath in hospital at Pacewalk. He was already resolved to save the world from Bolshevism. Yet he did not spring to save Munich from Bolshevism. Well, well, Hitler was a corporal in the army who just got out of the hospital, right? So if Hitler had um, stood up in the middle of Munich and announced he was forming the Hitler Fry Corps, that would have been a, a bit silly, wouldn't it? He probably would have been taken off and shot immediately. He did not make his way out and join the Epp Free Corps, although he avowedly burn, burned to fight. He was in Munich and he was a soldier. But the soldiers in Munich were under the orders of the Red Government. The Jewish government ruled from Moscow. If he was in the barracks, he must have been a Red. And that's a lie. That's a blatant lie. The, the, the regular army in Munich consisted of 9,000 men who joined the Free Corps as soon as von Epp reached the, the, the borders of Munich. And they're referred to as the um, bourgeois executioners. Right. Now, this is six months later. This is in April of 1919 when Bavaria does, when we do have the, the Red Revolution, when Levine does seize the government. This is six months after. Hitler's already been in the regular army for six months. That now the, um, the Levine government does not employ the regular army. They had their own army, and, and the sources that, that I compiled, the paper on my Mein Kampf website, the, um, the Lies of Otto Strasser and Douglas Reed, Part 1, I never got around to writing Part 2. I apologize for that. It's been a while. But, but um, basically, the sources that, that I used for that article stated that Levine's 
mercenary army, which he assembled himself because he couldn't trust the regular army, consisted of 20,000 men, which was two and a half times or over twice as large as the regular army. And that he did not employ the regular army. So, so what we have, um, Reed is contradicting the history of Munich in the period in order to try to portray, and he's following Otto Strasser, and he's purposely attempting to portray Hitler as a communist in this period, and it's simply not true. Instead of accurate history, we're now getting historical novel according to Otto Strasser, as well, you know, well, retold by Douglas Reed. Well, right. It's a historical novel, and and it's um it, it's based on it's based on false premises. Right. So it's secondhand fiction. There was much muttering and murmuring among national socialist leaders, much shaking of puzzled heads. That that's a lie. The only people shaking their puzzled heads were, were the Strasser brothers. In later years, about this. But not the hint of an explanation of his doings in Munich at that time ever came from Hitler. And, and that's not entirely true because there are allusions in Mein Kampf that Hitler was under investigation by the government for his political activities. And Hitler did state that in Mein Kampf. Well, also, this, too, Hitler's trying to reach out to the communists at this point and get them away from the Jews and away from Moscow. So what's he supposed to write? While I was in Munich, I killed 17 communists or ho- however many it would have been. That's that's not going to help that's not going to help reconciliation so i think that merits mention people should keep that in mind but well read those on to say this is a complete gap in mein kampf is it a complete gap in mein kampf let's go look at mein kampf hitler didn't say much about this period but we're going to see from page 121 of Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler writes, as the new Soviet revolution began to run its course in Munich, now this started April 6, 1919, right? My first activities drew upon me the ill will of the Central Council. In the early morning of April 27th, that's three weeks later, 1919, I was to have been arrested but the three fellows who came to arrest me did not have the courage to face my rifle and withdrew just as they had arrived. So Douglas Reed is saying that this is a complete gap in Mein Kampf, and he's a liar. He's a blatant liar. Hitler did discuss in brief what his activities were and, and relate that he became suspect by the Red Regime for his political activities. So, so Reed is it, it's just a liar. It's not a complete gap in Mein Kampf. It, it just, um, he, he's taking advantage. How many people are going to go and read the first 121 pages of the book to see whether Reed's telling the truth? I think he, he's, trying to, um, he's trying to create a, a historical novel so that he could slander Adolf Hitler. And, and he, he's an, an Anglophile. And simply because he has Otto Strasser to feed off of, like a parasite, and Otto Strasser is a complete political enemy of Adolf Hitler, and he's going to say anything he can to discredit Hitler, Reed swallowed it, hook, line, and sinker. That's pretty shameful that 
He hasn't verified any of this, and he's running with it just because he's anti-German and anti-Hitler. Where if you're if you're a academically responsible, honest writer, you don't take someone else's accusations and reprint them. You you go to the source and you try and verify. Absolutely. Otherwise, you end up looking like a clown someday. I mean, if you report to me that you saw Bigfoot in the woods of Tennessee, and I start writing online, Bigfoot discovered, I'm going to look like an idiot. Well, back to Reed. It is one of the darkest things in all his dark history. I would give almost anything I have to know for whom that man really worked, not only then, but at all times later. Otto Strasser first drew my particular attention to this remarkable episode in Hitler's life. Although I had closely studied these things, I had overlooked it, and I do not think any other writer has noticed its significance or discussed it. Well, well yeah, you know, you could overlook something that isn't there until somebody tries to, tries to convince, you, convince you that it's there. And if it fits your agenda, then you're going to believe that it's there. Indeed, a man who was up to the neck in, in the political turmoil of those days, as was Otto Strasser, is needed to put it in its true proportion, and future historians will be indebted to him for this, because it is one of the most important of the things we know, and they are too few, about the man Hitler. Later, when we know more of him, and the double or triple game he always played is clearer to see, it may prove to be the missing piece in the jigsaw puzzle. And this is all, all a lie, I would assert. It is worth explaining more fully for this reason. The Red Regime in Munich lasted from November 1918 until May 1st, 1919. Now, that's not true. The Red Regime in Munich took over after the assassination of Kurt Eisner in April of 1919. It lasted so, less than a month. Right, right. It lasted less than a month, and Reed is lying about it, because the Eisner regime, even though it was socialist, it wasn't red. It can't be considered red. That they, they purposely tried to try to um, separate themselves and, and distance themselves from the communists in Moscow. The Red Regime in Munich lasted from November 1918 until May 1st, 1919. Hitler, according to his own account in Mein Kampf, was filled with the most violent hatred of Jewish communist revolution in Germany from the moment it broke out in the first days of November. In the last days of November, cured and discharged from the hospital, he reported to his regimental depot in that very Munich where the Reds were most powerful. That now, Hitler was not discharged from the army. I don't believe he was discharged from the army. I have no indication he was discharged from the army at this point. He was discharged from the hospital. That doesn't discharge him from the army. His own battalion was under the orders of the Revolutionary, Revolutionary Soldiers' Council. That's not true in November of 1918. This so disgusted him, he says, that by some means he contrived to be sent to a camp at Tronstein a few miles away. He says that he returned to Munich in March. The Reds were driven out by von Epp and the Prussian troops at the end of April. For about two months, therefore, Hitler, a serving soldier, was in Munich when the Red regime was at its height under the rule of the Russian Jews sent from Moscow when the hostages were being shot. But while the regular army was assassinating all the communists they could in that period, the communist army was a lot bigger. 
Good Bavarians who were there at the same time contrived by hook or by crook to get out of Munich and make their way to Von Epp, returning with him to drive the Reds out. Otto Strasser did this at the risk of his life and after surmounting many difficulties. I can't speak at all for Strasser. Hitler, who devotes so many pages in his book to windy abuse of the Reds in Moscow and of international Bolshevism in general, stayed quietly in Munich. That's not true, or he wouldn't have been that they wouldn't have attempted his arrest on April 27th. He says no word of his life in Munich during those two months. He gives no description of the horrors he saw. He, who later rails for pages at a time about the wholesale massacres in Moscow or of conditions in Munich at all. But, and this is the vital point, he was a soldier, and soldiers who stayed in Munich were under the orders of that red government if they didn't like it. They deserted by night or to Von Epp in Thuringia, and Hitler did not do that. He was then a red, which is not true. He probably wore the red armband. Presumably, with the rest of the Munich garrison, he took part in the fighting against Von Epp's troops. Well, well, it's a matter of history that the regular Munich army joined Von Epp's troops when Von Epp arrived in, in, in Bavaria. It needs to be mentioned, too, that Otto Strasser joined the Social Democratic Party in either 1919 or 1920, which Kurt Eisner was a social democrat, so the original socialist communist takeover in 1918 was a social democratic one, and then of course there were the Spartacists and the Bavarian Soviet Republic, but Strasser was basically a communist through and through. He was in the social democratic party, and social democracy is a variation of communism. Well, well right. Kurt Eisner was a social democrat, and the Social Democrats came to power in November of 1918, and they formed the Bavarian Socialist Republic. Yes, that's true. And it's the Bavarian Socialist Republic which Hitler had returned to when he was released from the hospital. However, the Bavarian Socialist Republic was supposed to be a, a, a socialist democracy, and it distanced itself from Moscow. They did not embrace Moscow like the Levine regime did in April of 1919. Right. Now, if the Jewish communists were happy with the Social Democrats, they sure as hell wouldn't have assassinated Kurt Eisner in order to take over Bavaria. So it's it's sort of like the case where you bring out a Kerensky to form a transitional government and destabilize society, and then you get rid of him and bring Lenin in. Well, well right. Hitler returned to a Bavaria that he didn't like, but he, he felt that he had not much choice. He was still in the army. He was still assigned to a unit in Munich. He still considered Munich his home, and he had no other home. His mother was dead. He had no other home. And he was only, what, about 20 years old, 21 years old? I, I, don't, I don't remember off the top of my head. I thought he might have been about 30. Hitler was about 30 at the time. He was 30 already by this time? Really? Yeah. He was 30 years old in 1919. He was born in 1889. Okay. I stand corrected. I didn't think he was that old. But, but he was still homeless. Right. And then there were people that slander him by saying he was a professional revolutionary who never worked a day in his life. And to counter them, I would just say, okay, walk up to a soldier and tell him he's never worked a day in his life. Hitler was a painter, a manual laborer, and a soldier. And those are all, you know, three honest trades. Right. 
He was never a banker or a loan shark. Oh, okay, or, or or a pimp. The the um right Douglas Reed is really um is really perverting history here in order to paint Hitler in a bad light. And Otto Strasser was the real red. He he was the real red. He was the real communist. And basically, he he's um pointing the finger at Adolf Hitler. Well, which is pretty in, incredible, but it, it's bold, but th- this works in the minds of many people. I, I mean, many people have bought into this um, Douglas Reed hatchet job of Adolf Hitler. But, and this is the vital point, I, I'm sorry, I already read that paragraph, I don't want to reread it. What other leader of such a party as the National Socialist Party would in a book pass over in silence such a period as this? Well, well you know, Mein Kampf is about Hitler's political awakening. It, it's not about his deeds on the battlefield. He didn't discuss his deeds on the battlefield. He was a decorated soldier. He spent four years on the front in, in World War I. He didn't brag about his deeds on the battlefield. He didn't go into the details of, of, of his time as a soldier on the front. Now, if he'd have gone into the details, uh, uh, in, in detail, his four years on the front as a German soldier in the First War, and then omitted the, the, um, the, the street battles and, and the things that he did in Munich in 1919, well, well, then you might suspect that he may be a hypocrite. But he didn't do that. He omitted both. And he, by all historical accounts, even though he was only a corporal, had a quite distinguished career in in the German army for four years. Now, he omitted all of the details of that army career. He wasn't a braggart. He he wasn't a man that talked about himself. He he wasn't a man that talked about his physical prowess or, or his or his courage or his prowess on the battlefield. He didn't make it a habit of doing that. Mein Kampf is a book about political awakening, and your actions on a battlefield have nothing to do with your political awakening. They have nothing to do with the formation of your political philosophy. And that's what Mein Kampf is about. So, so this is a very unfair assumption concerning um, Hitler's motives in the way that he wrote Mein Kampf. Well, you know, if he had written, I won the Iron Cross twice, I killed 80 people, I captured a, a British regiment single-handedly, I routed the, the French, people would have just called him arrogant. Well, well, right, they would have. But he didn't write those things. He, he didn't write about his exploits as a soldier. He didn't right. do it in relation to his regular service in the First World War, and he didn't do it in relation to his time in Munich after the war. But why he would he? He, w- he wasn't writing a war memoir. Right. I mean, if, if I'm writing a political manifesto and you yell at me for not including my favorite recipes in there, well, it's not a cookbook. It's a political manifesto. Well, well absolutely. I mean, this is a very unfair characterization by Reed. Reed would only have a complaint here if Hitler went into detail about his exploits as a soldier in the war 
and then omitted anything that he may have done in Munich. Then Reed might have a point. Reed doesn't have a leg to stand on here. He's just not being objective. He's trying to use Hitler's omission of his battlefield exploits as a, as a, um, as a point against Hitler, and that's simply unfair. It's absolutely unfair. Back to Reed, even though I'd rather not, but let's get back to Reed. <laughs> but this, and, and, and I'm probably going to read this paragraph a, a second. No, I'm, I'm not. Okay, I know where I am now. What other leader of such a party as the National Socialist Party would pass over in silence such a period as this? The same guy that passed over in silence his period, his war exploits, right? All Hitler has to, has to say about about it is the vague and unintelligible remark that he was nearly arrested three days before the Reds were driven out. From that, he calmly passes on to a sentence beginning, a few days after the liberation of Munich, I was, and he inserts an ellipsis, nothing about his reasons for staying in Munich, nothing about the horrors of a Red regime which he actually knew. Nothing about the severe fighting that preceded the liberation of Munich. Nothing about the triumphal entry of von Epp's troops. Every other notable National Socialist leader or stormtroop commander in those days fought with one or other of the Free Corps somewhere in Germany. This was the very thing that gave them a claim to subsequent advancement in the party. But the Fuhrer himself, the arch anti-Red, was in Munich. He who always filled with the religious horror, he who was always filled with the religious horror and hatred of the Bolshevists, retained from these months spent under their rule in a city that he regarded as his, his adopted birthplace, no single memory worth putting on paper. Well, he didn't put any of his memories of the war on paper. I believe that future historians will need to start their researches into his life in Munich in the period between March and May 1919, as soon as you wade through 90 billion tons of Jewish garbage. And unless all the tracks have faded, they will discover some strange things. Otto Strasser says that for many years afterwards, until the advent to power placed Hitler on a pedestal elevated above all such doubts, which would have cost the audible doubter his life, the National Socialist leaders, when they were talking together of this and that, always returned to the question, what was Adolf Hitler doing, what was Adolf doing in Munich in March and April 1919? And the answer was always a perplexed shrug of the shoulders or shake of the head. Now, now that's something subject, subjective that cannot be quantified at all. And Reed is actually, he is actually discrediting all of the National Socialist leaders who he claims to be commending or who he appears to be commending, he's actually discrediting them because they all fell in line behind Adolf Hitler well before 1932. Absolutely. An interesting well, question. Long before the Nazis, the National Socialists ever had a seat in Parliament. And they did so voluntarily. None of those men at the beer hall puts in Munich, none of those men were compelled to die. So, so Reed is discrediting the people who, who, who he, he, he appears to be extolling. Well, isn't that what a Jew does? He appears to be flattering you, but he um, ruins you. 
he's actually involved in you. I mean, Reed is, I don't think Reed's a Jew. He's a, a good, decent white guy, but he's, he's borrowing a move out of their playbook because he's prejudiced against Germans, and it's rather shameful. Absolutely. He's prejudiced against Germans. He's especially prejudiced against Hitler, and that's exactly what he does. Well, he poses an interesting question, albeit one that begs a certain answer, even when the truth is readily apparent. Hitler was in the regular German army in Bavaria, and the Jew instigators of the Bavarian Soviet Republic, Ernst Toller and Eugene Levine, did not gain the loyalty of the regular army soldiers in Munich or Bavaria. Instead, they recruited criminals, factory workers, convicts, and the insane, and armed them. They formed a veritable Red Army, officially the Red Guards, in and around Munich. Even so, their German soldiers... Red Army soldiers, refused to kill the hostages in Munich, so Lenin had to send in Bolshevik Jew commissars from Russia through Hungary, which had an ongoing Bolshevik uprising of its own, thanks to the Jew, Bela Kuhn, into Munich to serve as executioners. What was Hitler doing while all of that madness was unfolding? I imagine he was doing much of the same that he had done during the last four years, namely fighting for Germany. Strasser and Douglas Reed want us to believe that Hitler, a man twice decorated with the Iron Cross, a man who was wounded several times in the First World War, a man who survived being gassed in the trenches, was a coward who not only refused to oppose the Marxist takeover of Munich, but joined the ranks of their new Red Army out of fear. It's an interesting theory, although alchemy and hollow earth were interesting theories as well, but today, not even a drug-addled madman believes in alchemy or hollow earth. It is particularly rich when a man, Strasser, who is an outspoken leftist against the very concept of private property, elects to use the Marxist slur against an enemy. Strasser made a career out of lying about Hitler because Strasser felt cheated. He felt that he, Strasser, and not Hitler, should have led the NSDAP, and that it should have instituted Bolshevik-style reforms all across Germany. Hitler, with the patriots of the Freikorps, the Stahlhelm, and the brown shirts, had been fighting the communists all across Germany for over a decade. If Hitler was simply a closet leftist, then why bother fighting the left? Why not just let them roll over and take all of Germany? It seems that Strasser's great hatred of Hitler is born from the fact that Hitler kept Germany from becoming a Bolshevik Republic. And as for Douglas Reed, he was actually a reasonably well-informed man who knew some things about the world communist conspiracy, the Jews, and secret societies, yet he let his hatred of the Germans overcome him and cloud his mind. In his 1966 book, The Battle for Rhodesia, he wrote, Bill, would you like to read his writing? Yeah, if you need a break. In America, I often sense this uneasy feeling about the present and future, contrasting violently with the wealth and power around, that sounded in a recurrent theme, doomed from here to eternity. Something in the songsters needed to express itself in this dolorous ballad lifted out of another time, place, and context. In three lengthy sojourns in America, I felt this subsurface apprehension or fear of the future more and more tangibly. I think its cause is becoming clear. It lies in my diagnosis 
in incomprehension of today's America. Americans have lost earlier beliefs because these have been taken from them. They have no clear purpose or sense of purpose because none is now to be discerned. American state policy, as declared, is to maintain America as the citadel of the free world against the further inroad of the destructive revolution, bent on obliterating, obliterating race, nationhood, familyhood, and religion. American state action since 1917 have progressively promoted the spread of that revolution. No adult American can remain blind to this contradiction between word and deed. Two stricken presidents, each re-elected on the promise of peace, brought America at once into world wars, which in the sequel, after victory, increased in the area and power of the revolution. The 20 years following the Second World War have seen the continuance of this. America makes local forays against communism, which leave no dent in the thing itself and end in semi-fiasco, witness Korea, Vietnam, and Cuba. Between whiles, American state patronage of the revolution in reality goes on and is plainest to see in Africa, where implacable American pressure for black majority rule has helped bring about the present chaos of racial and tribal warfare in northern Africa, under cover of which communism, leaping over the Middle East and Indian Ocean, has planted its first overseas colony in Colony in embryo at Dar es Salaam on the African, East African coast, whence news about the rest of Africa reaches the ears of the free world through the BBC and the Voice of America. Communist media There we have it. Douglas Reed knew about a global communist conspiracy. He understood that the American capitalist system was actually working to advance communism, so he had to know about the Jews. After all, he did write Controversy of Zion, and he had to realize that Hitler was not a communist nor a capitalist, but rather a revolutionary German nationalist. Douglas Reed succumbed to vanity and jingoism, as so many in our race often do, and wound up hating his brothers after being spoon-fed anti-German propaganda by Jews and their lackeys. I am sure if Douglas Reed had stayed in Britain and served on the home front instead of in the Royal Flying Corps, he would have turned out posters along the lines of Halt the Hun, portraying Germans as Turco-Mongolian beasts from the East. Hitler's detractors have always been Jews, Freemasons, and Communists. As to the possibility of his being in league with the Communists in Munich in 1919, his main accusers are the Communist Otto Strasser and the highly prejudiced German hater Douglas Reed. Douglas Reed got quite a lot right when he wrote about the, consp the communist conspiracy, Rhodesia, South Africa, and the march of communism across Africa, but he really dropped the ball when it came to Germany and Hitler. And, and he should have realized, anybody that understands that the, um, the Talmudic conspiracy to corrupt the entire world, which is very real and very observable in history, anybody who understands that, should never be on the wrong side of understanding when it comes to Adolf Hitler and National Socialist Germany, because Adolf Hitler fought a Talmudic conspiracy. National Socialist Germany was probably the last free nation in Western history. I have no doubt. Well, it's one of the most demonized and vilified, and we only get the history of National Socialist Germany through the Jewish lens. That's why we hear such 
fabulous, fantastic stories that the Germans had a, a soccer stadium and they put 500 Jewish babies on the field and started kicking them around like soccer balls. That just sounds like something out of a, that the Jews fantasize about doing to white Russians and white Ukrainians. Absolutely. Probably something they did to them. But really, we, we see history through a Jewish lens. Well, well most mo- most people, I, I, I wouldn't say we because right. I don't think but, but yes, not 99% of Americans, even a lot of people in identity Christianity who claim to know better, do indeed see history through a Jewish lens because they haven't read the right literature. And I didn't mean we as in we on this program, we in this movement. I meant we as in our society, our civilization at large. I was only making a rhetorical right. device. We're letting the enemies of Christ the murderers of God, the greatest liars in history, write the story of our fathers, grandfathers, and ancestors down through the ages. We're letting them tell us who our grandparents and great-grandparents were and what kind of men they were. And personally, I'm sick of letting some hook-nosed Christ killer tell me that my grandparents were murderers and tyrants who stood in the way of the workers' paradise. Well, well that, that's very true. If you ask, well, well, if you expect the average American... To, to go read a history book. He's going to get the advertisement out of his mailbox for the history book club. And he's going to open it up and he's going to order the history of, of, of Britain is written by Simon Shema, the Jew. And, and a hundred Jews like him. And they're, they're, they're excellent at self-promoting and promoting their own co-religionists. And um, that, that's what you do if you, if you want to, publishing house and you're a Jew and well, well, if you own a bank and you're a Jew and your, your cousin's printing the money over at the federal reserve and you're going to loan the money to the Jew that's in the publishing house. And he's going to take that money and he's going to go hire himself a hundred Jew historians and they're going to write books about Goy history and, and sell them to the Goyim for handsome profit. And in the meantime, they're reeducating the Goyim in, in um, in, in, in a means which is much more amenable to, to the continuance of the Jew scam that's been imposed on the world through usury. And, you know, I'm not interested in their story of our people. I'm interested in the truth. Uh, and when you need, want to get to the truth, you need to find a party that can be objective. If you want to read a, a, a book about Al Capone, you wouldn't go pick up a book written by Al Capone where he says, I'm a great guy and I helped everyone in Chicago and I, I never did anything wrong and never had anyone killed because obviously the consensus would be that that's not true. So when we go to the Jews and say we'd like to hear the, the history of the English people, what are they going to tell us other than what they want us to hear? They're not going to tell us the truth. Well, when a Jew moves his lips, he's lying. Okay, thank you for joining me. Well, we, we will probably have um, additional episodes on this topic in the future. Um, thank you for being here. Praise Yahweh. And, and thank Praise you. Yahweh. For- thank you.